0: Free speech. Meinungsfreiheit. I'm Brian Pellet.
1: And I'm Katie Engelhardt. Welcome to the second podcast of On Free Speech.
0: We're back with a new selection of highlights, interviews, and the best case studies from freespeechdebate.com, which, by the way, you can now read in English, French, Spanish, Turkish, Chinese, Portuguese, Japanese, Arabic, and German.
1: In this episode, we'll hear from professor and former Obama advisor Tim Wu, who coined the term net neutrality, and Mark Thompson, director general of the BBC, on why his network decided to broadcast a gay Jesus in a diaper.
0: We'll speak with Faisal Devji, a rising star in South Asian history, about free speech in India, and we'll bring an FSD team member Amy Chin to talk about information blackouts in China.
1: But first... Does Mark Zuckerberg know too much?
0: Well, he does about me. I got zuckered last month.
1: Why don't you tell us what that means?
0: Yeah, so basically it's a reference to Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, and it means revealing more information about yourself than you'd intended.
1: Zuckering, and much more, was up for debate at our Facebook event last month in Oxford, which featured Lord Richard Allen, director of Facebook's public policy in Europe. Lord Allen met with a barrage of questions from fellow panelist Victor Meyer Schoenberger, author of Delete, The Virtue of Forgetting in the Digital Age. Audience members, too, took issue with Facebook's real name policy, its claim to transparency, and its use of personal data.
0: What stood out most to me was the debate around the company's ethos. Victor said Facebook's values are based on Zuckerberg's, quote, naive American conception that more free speech and transparency are necessarily forces for good around the world. Lord Allen stood by his boss.
2: We've created a system which is avowedly about openness and connection. It's based on, you can call it a naive view, that the world will be a happier place overall if we are more open and connect more with each other. That's our kind of thesis.
1: I don't know, Brian, what do you think about this idea of an American company exporting American values abroad?
0: It's definitely not something new. But when you get to a company of 845 million people, it's bound to happen. I mean, what's interesting is that Facebook has only kept Facebook.com, whereas Google has actually gone out and decided to be Google.ae, Google.fr. They have sort of stripped away from that one central company. Facebook says they're not doing that, so it will be interesting to see how that changes in the next few years.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. Governments do this all the time with cultural attaches attached to embassies. This is sort of different, and I think that it stoked a lot of fear, but at the same time, Facebook's values must have currency abroad or people wouldn't be signing up. Anonymity was another hot topic, particularly the use of pseudonyms on Facebook. Facebook's real name policy came under fire after a number of activists using fake names found their accounts deleted. The most cited instance was in Egypt last year, when Facebook disabled the Arabic group We Are All Khaled Said because its administrators were using pseudonyms. One was Yel Gonim, the Google executive who was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People of 2011. Explaining Facebook's policy, Lord Allen said,
2: We think that the core of the success of Facebook, as opposed to any other comparable service, is the fact that when you make friends with someone and connect with somebody on Facebook, you have a reasonable expectation that they are who they say they are. And as soon as we try and make exceptions to that rule for whatever noble purpose, and it's particularly sensitive around issues to do with human rights activists, you're then left in the position of where do you stop?
0: And of course, a discussion on social media wouldn't be complete without addressing data privacy. Lord Allen didn't beat around the bush. When you use the internet, he said, you're entering into a deal.
2: If you just go to what appears to be a regular website with no exchange of personal information on it, the chances are you are exchanging personal information because it's got an ad network on, that's got cookies on, that's collecting data, that's creating profiles, etc. I mean, that's, The internet is a series of deals.
1: interesting to me is not only the fact that this single company, Facebook, is at the heart of so many state-level policy disputes, but also the way it's become the source of conflicts within the home. In 2010, the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers did a survey. 80% of lawyers indicated that they had used Facebook in their cases or had Facebook used against them. Two-thirds of the lawyers surveyed said that Facebook was the, quote, primary source of evidence in divorce proceedings, that's compared to only 5% for Twitter. Then again, I guess it would be pretty harsh to break up with your spouse in 140 characters.
0: We sat down this month with Faisal Devji, South Asian expert at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, to discuss free speech in India. Let's hear the interview.
1: So I wanted to start with the biggest news. In February, India hosted its annual Jaipur Literary Festival. Salman Rushdie, the Booker Prize-winning author of The Satanic Verses, cancelled his appearance at the festival for fear that it would spur violence. That's got a lot of attention in the international press. And it's been portrayed by many as a sign that the Indian free press is in peril. Uh, In a recent article in Current Intelligence, you wrote that this view is somewhat misguided.
3: Sometimes media scandals don't actually reach much beyond the television soundbite and the newspaper article. And this was in fact the case in India over this manufactured controversy at the Jaipur Literary Festival because in fact what you saw happening was the complete indifference of every Indian political party to the issue and indeed the indifference of the vast majority of Indians. So as you know the controversy began when Salman Rushdie's participation in the festival was announced. There were threats made, but the threats were very few and rather ambiguous. That doesn't mean they weren't serious. And from then on, it became a huge media circus. And yet, when you think about it, nothing really happened. That is to say, no mobs, no demonstrations, no significant threat. So this seems to have been a a tempest in a teapot.
1: Right. Going off of that last point, you said quite clearly in your article that this This incident around the Jaipur Literary Festival wasn't about free speech at all, um, though that's how it's been portrayed in a lot of media outlets. Uh, Why don't you think this was a free speech issue?
3: Well, partly because the problem with many of those, at least in India, who want to defend the right to free speech is that whenever they pick upon incidents that they think illustrate the threat against free speech, they tend not to think about them in their historical particularity and context. In the case of the Jaipur Literary Festival, what I thought was happening there was that you have these threats made in the run-up to a very important set of elections in the northern Indian state of Uttar Pradesh, and which has a Muslim population of about 20% of the total in that state. Those who were defending free expression at Jaipur realized that the threats made against Rushdie might have been linked to these elections. I think something else was in fact going on. You can't really say without descending into absurdity that every single political party in India is so concerned with Muslim votes that they will just keep silent about any threats. What in fact I think was happening was that the Muslim population of India was on a verge of a huge transformation. And this transformation has to do with the absorption of some or even all Muslims into the vast system of what in America might be called affirmative action and what in India is called reservations in the fields of employment and education, a system that has hitherto been reserved for people who belong to what were called the low castes of uh, the the Hindu community. This will really change the scene uh, in Indian politics.
1: It seems to me that part of the commotion could tie back to the fact that Salman Rushdie himself is held up as this sort of enduring free speech martyr in India. And I'm wondering if you think, sort of beyond the festival, that Salman Rushdie is deserving of this title.
3: I'm not so sure, because I would suspect that in the eyes of many, if not most, Indians, he represents our prestige and privilege more than a victim under siege. His history of victimization, of course, is very significant. Though so I wonder if it's now time to rethink what happened in 1989 when he was issued the infamous edict of death by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Of course, this edict was issued in a context of immense Muslim mobilization worldwide for the first time. And of course, it was made possible by the availability of television. People identified with one another from country to country. For me, the interesting point is that each time we have seen global mobilizations of Muslims protesting against an insult supposedly delivered to Muhammad, the, the prophet, it's happened because of something in Europe. Now, returning to India, we can see that you know, Rushdie's infamy in the West uh, gets reflected in 1989. But today, the situation is very different. He has become a different figure. Now, today, in a place like India, Rushdi is like a billboard upon which anyone can advertise their wares. The sort of Indian liberals who defend free speech will use him as their billboard. And various Muslim and other groups who feel that uh, they have been insulted or that Rushdie has insulted them will use him for their wares as well.
0: Yeah, so it seems like a lot of the spotlight's obviously been on Rushdie. But in the same article Katie referenced... You talk about how the literary festival was sort of an emblem for a broader clash between Muslims and Hindus. So how do religion and free speech really coexist in India?
3: Well, perhaps the best way into this is to note that in this particular case in Jaipur, there seems to have been no controversy between Hindus and Muslims. Now, that's, of course, a good thing in many ways. But in terms of free speech, it might also be a bad thing because it might indicate that there is a kind of connivance between, as it were, the extreme elements of both communities who might be saying to themselves, I will tolerate your sense of offence if you will tolerate mine. So, you know, when this Jaipur fiasco occurred, as I said, not only really, no one really protests very much apart from the liberals. But it was almost as if either very religious Hindus or indeed anti-Muslim right-wing Hindus, to say nothing of anti-Hindu right-wing Muslims, understood each other. That on this issue, they can at least come together. Though it is suspect in many senses, we should also be careful about not simply dismissing. Because if you dismiss one of the few shared moral senses that links people, then you might not have anything that links them. Very often, Indian liberals who defend free expression do so only overwhelmingly by talking about their rights. The enemies, on the other hand, they use the language of duty. But I think what's interesting and important about the sense of duty is that it's precisely a way of thinking and acting that does not claim to speak on behalf of the state, that does not adopt a universalistic, neutral attitude. So in an odd way, it allows space for dialogue and debate. We have a
0: principle at Free Speech Debate that says we respect the humanity of the believer, but not necessarily the content of the belief. Do you think this principle is upheld in India?
3: It's difficult to say. It might actually be upheld in its reversed form. That is to say, you respect the content of the belief, but you don't respect the believer. And indeed, that's what seems to be happening. So it's always the defense of the prophet, or the defense of Islam, or of Hinduism. But no one really asks about the believer.
1: Okay, I want to take a jump back to our conversation on religion. Last year, India's communications minister met with officials from Google, Facebook, a number of other websites, and expressed the government's desire to remove, quote, blasphemous material from the internet. Do you think Indians can express themselves freely online?
3: There seems to have been a a sort of backtracking on that particular issue. So now, apparently, the government of India is saying, well, no, they're not really going to be so active in in censoring. However, I would say that there, you actually do have a threat which comes from the state. And it's not a threat that's necessarily being pushed or promoted by religious groups. It's not like they're only gonna focus on as for religious offenses. On the contrary, it might have to do with issues uh, relating to corruption, which is the largest, the most recent great national scandal in India. It might not be a threat to the writing of literature, uh, though it might be there as well. Right? Uh, books are banned in India for all kinds of reasons. So in all these ways, the state has uh, formidable resources.
1: I'd like to suggest that there's sort of a third element to this. There was another incident in 2010 where Indian authorities attempted to pressure Research in Motion, the Canadian company that manufactures BlackBerry phones, into allowing official surveillance of instant messaging and emails. Elsewhere on our site, we talk about instances when individuals self-censor, and I'm wondering if you think this might apply in the Indian
3: case. In what sense?
1: In the sense that even if the government is sort of making these broad threats to to censor and and backtracking on them whether or not the mere fact that they make the threats instills a kind of fear in people makes people feel that they are being watched that they are being monitored and can't express themselves freely
3: yes and i think it goes beyond the mere threat in fact i don't think that's scaring people so much of course what is frightening is when the law is always in abeyance as it were because you always hear these announcements well this might happen this might not Uh, But it goes much beyond that as well, because the laws that are already on the books permit individuals and groups to harass those who they think are offending them by uh, creating a painting, a work of art, or writing a book, or saying something. And this is actually very worrying, because it seems as if anyone can go to the lower courts and get a stay against someone, and then force them at great expense and great waste of energy to go and fight cases here and there that might be lodged in courts across the country. So this is the primary way in which people are discouraged. It's not so much the sort of fear of the police coming and nabbing you, but rather in a completely everyday, open-handed manner. That is to say, well, quite legally and without even threatening violence, lodge a complaint in court, and if you go and fight it and win, then we'll lodge it in another court, and so on and so forth. And that seems to be, in fact, the new model of harassment that affects free expression. It's no longer huge riots and demonstrations. It's no longer even death threats. It's the courts.
0: I also interviewed Tim Wu, author of The Master Switch, on the right to be forgotten. Wu loves the idea of a forget-me button that would allow users to permanently delete bits of online information. Basically, he wants us to have more control over our own data. But at the same time, he worries compliance would overwhelm small companies and actually discourage online innovation. That would be a shame, since new internet companies are often the greatest agents of free speech.
4: Early Google, early Twitter, early radio, early
0: telephone. It's when they're in their young and sort of inspired phases of their lives, the companies do better things usually. And if we have a privacy regime that insulates what is becoming an an order, I um, am concerned about the dynamic effects of that. Wu also spoke about the expansion of social media networks into new countries, which inevitably will mean adopting their various free speech laws. He said a recent move by Twitter to censor tweets on a country-by-country basis may be the company's undoing. I mean this, quite seriously, when a company's DNA, its origins are in free speech. When it begins to break from those principles, it does so at its peril. So does Wu think Facebook should go into China? Absolutely not. I think the kind of uh, censorship that Facebook would find itself doing in China uh, would be unacceptable to anyone who believes in free speech. (music)
1: He also spoke with Mark Thompson, director general of the BBC, about his decision to broadcast Jerry Springer the opera in 2005. This went against protests from Christian organizations who didn't like a lot about the show, its irreverent treatment of religious themes, its dancing troupe of KKK members, and most controversially, its depiction of an adult Jesus in a diaper, admitting he was, in his own words, a bit gay. The BBC received a record 60,000 complaints about the show. So why did they broadcast it?
2: I thought that it was a piece of whatever you might think of its merit, manifestly, an artistically serious and interesting piece of work, and the public should have the right to choose whether to watch it or not.
1: It's interesting to note here that Thompson is a practicing Catholic who considers himself sensitive to mockery of religious figures. For that reason, he's never watched the controversial films The Last Temptation of Christ or The Life of Brian. After the broadcast, Thompson and several other BBC employees were threatened with violence. But Thompson doesn't regret the decision. He did concede, however, that his policy towards parody isn't consistent across all taboo topics. Thompson admitted the BBC probably would not have aired the show if it depicted the Prophet Muhammad in a diaper instead of Jesus.
2: You know, it's not as if, as it were, Islam is randomly spread across the UK population. It's almost entirely... Uh, by people who may already feel, in other ways, isolated, prejudiced against, and where they may well regard an attack on their religion as racism by other means.
1: The impact of this case was enormous. It fed into a parliamentary debate about blasphemy and blasphemous libel, and as a result, both were struck from English and Welsh law in 2008.
2: That's now left, essentially left our, our law. Well, I rejoice in that fact.
0: joining us in the studio is Amy Chin, FSD team member studying comparative government at Oxford. Amy focuses on state-society relations in China and wrote a case study for freespeechdebate.com about how a train collision in Wenzhou was wiped from the papers. Welcome, Amy. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about the case?
4: What happened was last year in July there was this collision that was near Wenzhou city in Zhejiang province and there were two high-speed trains traveling at full speed near Wenzhou when they both crashed and the story that the government initially gave was that a lightning had struck the first train and that because of some sort of faulty signaling that the second train had come from behind and crashed into the second train. As a result the two trains were derailed and about four cars fell off of the viaduct. 40 people died, 192 were injured. For A lot of people hailed it as sort of the political event of the year on the internet in China. Immediately after, about 10 million messages over the next week appeared on Sina Weibo, which is China's Twitter messaging service. The media really jumped on it, despite Chinese government directives to censor any reports really of the accident. And it was really significant for two reasons. The first of which is the Weibo response. So even before Xinhua, which is the official state media for China, had reported the accident, passengers who were on the train started tweeting from their phones images of the train collision providing the first reports of what had really happened. Then Xinhua got on board and the rest of the media in China too. It sort of unraveled from there where for that week people from CCTV news producers to newspapers to international media too, they all were criticizing China for not only allowing this accident to have occurred in the first place but subsequently their recovery efforts and their relief efforts. So that's really the second point, which is that the Chinese media was unprecedented in its coverage of this incident. They really didn't take any heed of the government directives to censor the messages. And I was in Beijing at the time, and I remember he- first hearing about the accident. And everyone around me, I was working at Baidu at the Chinese search engine, and a lot of my friends were in this Chinese media circles. We were all kind of talking about it as if it was the apocalypse, and how this was the end of the CCP. And for a week, it really, really did seem like that might be the case. But a week afterwards, when after Wen Jiabao actually visited the site, Wen Jiabao being the premier, visited the site of the crash, They issued this very, very strict directive down to the media saying, no more, otherwise you're going to get fired or taken away. The next morning, so I'd been reporting basically every day on Baidu Beach, and on Friday, the Wenzhou accident was still in the top ten, and by the time I got into work on Monday, it was completely wiped off of the top search results.
1: These ideas about China's great internet firewall are quite well known, but I'm wondering, on a sort of day-to-day basis, how does the CCP, that's the Chinese Communist Party, censor the internet?
4: So it's actually a really complex thing, the great firewall, but it's not really a wall as much as it is an onion, I guess. Mm-hmm. At the core of it is this wall where you have the government just censors tens of thousands of websites And this is sort of all systematic, it's all codified. Besides humans actually coming up with the code, there's not really any human manual labor involved in blocking these websites, except to continually add politically sensitive keywords so that they can automatically filter out these websites. Another layer is what Rebecca McKinnon talks about in her most recent book called Consent of the Network, which is this really sort of delegated authority down to the corporations to take care of censorship. And so the burden isn't really on the government to monitor every single message or all the content that's posted online but actually on the companies themselves and to do this the biggest thing for these internet companies such as Baidu or Tencent or Sina is to enforce these censorship regulations so what ends up happening is that a lot of these censorship regulations are actually quite vague and in order to make sure that they're staying on the right side they'll sort of overcompensate and they'll censor more. Another layer is what's called the 50 cent party And this is minions, I guess you could say, of the government who are sort of hired to post this sort of propaganda messages online. And so the idea and the joke is that they get paid 50 cents for each message that they post online in these forums to promote a positive image of the government. The fourth layer is self-censorship. And the reason why it's so hard to study is because it's studying what's not there and it's trying to predict what people would have said and it involves a lot of counterfactual work. And in my experience from talking to my Chinese friends, this is actually a very serious problem. When they're posting online, they really do have to think twice about what they're posting, whether or not what they're saying is politically sensitive and if it's going to get the attention of the government officials. And this problem has actually been more recently exacerbated by this development of the real name registration system, which is this campaign that the Chinese Communist Party is trying to promulgate, which is that every Internet user has to register in order to use the Internet with their real name.
0: But I know that people get around these obstacles, so how are they doing that in China?
4: The most popular and widely known method of getting around internet censorship in China is using a VPN or a virtual proxy network. There are many services that are provided in China. There's one that the... Gong movement fund so you can use it for free it's called freegate but most of the time from my experience and with my friends in China we will pay about twenty dollars a month to access a VPN but we have to get an idea of the scope of things in China so there's basically 513 million internet users in China about only one percent of these 513 million actually use a VPN to get around and even though that's in the single digit millions which is still a lot it's not as much as we would expect and I think that begs another question as why are there not more people using VPN services in China? And I think that's partly because there's really just not that much demand. If you look at what the development of the Chinese internet over the past 10 years or so, you can see this really concerted effort to kind of create a Chinese intranet. And what that means is that for every major internet service that we have in the West or in other parts of the world, so for example, Google, there's a Chinese counterpart. Baidu. For Facebook, there's Renan. For Twitter, there's Weibo. And so for Chinese internet users, they don't really have the need to access these international sites because for most of them, what they need is right there at their fingertips, and they don't really even notice the censorship.
1: That's interesting. It's almost like China has done what Iran is now threatening to do, create this national internet.
4: Yeah, and I think that they're definitely providing a model for other countries that are also developing their internet just now to follow. So Amy, as we near the end of the interview, I was
1: hoping we could turn back to our site. We've had three interviews on freespeechdebate.com blocked in China. They were with Daniel Bell, Tim Wu, and Yan Shui Tong. I'm wondering if you have any idea why this might be happening.
4: That's interesting. I'm not really sure why this is happening. They are all academics, and they all speak within the Chinese sphere. I think it could really fall down to any of the outer layers of this onion of censorship. It could be just sort of a mechanical censoring of keywords, so maybe something like free speech too many times in one, one web page sort of tip them off. It could be also just a manual censoring as well. But what I think is more interesting is that it could be completely random, too. We have no idea. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us, Amy. Thank you.
0: Shortly after this interview, Free Speech Debate was blocked in China and our Sina Weibo account deleted.
1: And now, it's time to hear some comments from our online readers. Both of these comments are responses to a case study I wrote for freespeechdebate.com about Julian Assange, founder of WikiLeaks. In the case study, I asked whether or not Julian Assange should be considered a journalist and thus receive the same legal protections that journalists do. D. Wittenberg wrote, If speech is a right, then all citizens should have so-called journalistic privilege. Speech rights are universal and shouldn't be contingent on whether a citizen is a journalist or a cleric. J. L. R. Marin argued that intense media focus on Assange has diverted attention from the role that leaks play in journalism and government. J. L. R. Marin wrote, I can't help but think that the process of disseminating all the classified material that WikiLeaks has gathered is ultimately what soured the professional and public perception of Assange. Ultimately, he released classified documents in order to inform the public of what the US government, and others, were up to, take away the sneering, nasty megalomaniac and focus just on his actions, and I see the most wildly successful piece of investigative journalism in history. Stepping back from the site for a moment, Brian, what are this month's free speech indicators?
0: 184. That's how many witnesses were heard in the first round of the Levison Inquiry into British press standards. The inquiry followed the News International phone hacking scandal that erupted last summer. The first round lasted 40 days and cost taxpayers more than £855,000.
1: We've got two events planned next month in Oxford. Global Voices co-founder Rebecca McKinnon will talk about her new book, Consent of the Networked. And Irshad Manji, director of the Moral Courage Project at New York University, will talk about how not to talk about Islam.
0: Beyond Oxford, Free Speech Debate director Timothy Garden ash will be launching the site in Egypt and India. Check out freespeechdebate.com for the latest interviews, case studies, and events.
1: And you can follow us on Twitter at OnFreeSpeech, at facebook.com slash freespeechdebate, and, of course, on our website, freespeechdebate.com. Until next month, goodbye. Bis
4: Adios.
3: Auf
4: Wiederhören.
0: On Free Speech was produced by your host and online editor, Mariam Omidi. The music is Lale Lale by Imperial Tiger Orchestra, Track 2 by Deep Singh and Ikhlaq Hussein Al-Khan, Rhythm Gitan by Latch Swing, Pornographique by Sad Robot, and Gentle Marimba by Alistair Cameron. All of these are under a Creative Commons license from the Free Music Archive.